This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne. This is Safe Space Radio for Courageous Conversations. Today is the fifth interview in our series on child abuse. After doing two shows on the long-term health consequences of child abuse, I interviewed Bree Maselli two weeks ago about the emotional abuse she suffered growing up in a home with domestic violence. Last week, I interviewed the Reverend Carl Russell about his experiences being abused by his childhood priest. Today, I'll be speaking with Rachel Grant about her experience being sexually abused at the age of 10 by her grandfather, who had come to live with her family. In each of these interviews, we're hoping to identify the long-term impact of child abuse and especially to explore the steps of healing and recovery. Rachel Grant is a trauma recovery coach and author of Beyond Surviving, The Final Stage in Recovery from Sexual Abuse. After suffering for years from her own experience of being sexually abused, she set out to discover how to break free from the past and live her own life free of the patterns that the abuse had put in place. Rachel lives and works in San Francisco. She has a master's in psychology, and she's created her own coaching program to help sexual abuse survivors live full lives Beyond Survivorship. Welcome to Safe Space, Rachel. Hello, Anne. Thanks for having me on. So let's set the stage together a little bit. What was the context that set this up to happen? Hmm. Well, actually, when I was five years old, my grandfather uh, came to live with us. He was getting a little bit older and just needed to be, you know, watched over, cared for a little bit more. Um, So living on his own was no longer an option, and he came to live uh, with myself, my mother, and my father in our home. And was he someone that you were close to? Well, it, it's interesting because, you know, from 5 to 10, uh, he was there, he was present, and I certainly remember, you know, spending time with him, just kind of watching TV or hanging out on the front porch, and uh, we would not talk very much, but I, I took care of him quite a lot. You know, I would kind of had these routines of, uh, giving to him. I would take him his, you know, bowl of cereal at night or uh, help him out onto the porch by holding our screen door open. That was kind of springy. So I uh, would help him out that way. Um, I, I guess I think of him as kind of a quiet companion. When you say I had these routines of giving to him, did you feel like he took advantage of that, that you had been mm. so thoughtfully giving to him and that he sort of exploited that giving? I don't think it, uh, it's ever crossed my mind that way, that it was uh, taking advantage of, that, that there was kind of this space of I was, you know, opening myself up to him or that he was uh, looking for an angle or a way in. Um, the circumstances that led up to the abuse, it was one of those moments where I was, you know, helping him out onto the porch and he just kind of held on to me and walked me over to the porch swing with him. It seemed so unplanned. It didn't seem like this was something that uh, he was uh, maneuvering for, that he was trying to make happen. It just seemed uh, very strange and like a surprise. And how long did it go on for, Rachel? I would say over about the course of six months. Um, things would happen and uh, to varying degrees of kind of intensity. And there are certain things that I remember, but sort of only vaguely as having happened. So in other words, you're saying there's some parts of it you really do remember, but other parts are very vague. Yeah. 
right. Yeah, yeah. W- and we know that that's sort of in the nature of trauma. The mm-hmm. memory is protective in that way. And I understand that your parents found out about it. I'd love to hear the story of how they found out. Well, one of the days when we were sitting out on the porch, which is where often the abuse would happen, uh, there was a a window right next to the porch swing. And my mother walked by and just looking out the window, uh, noticed that he was touching me. And she came flying out onto the porch and kind of yelled, Rachel, get in here, get in this house. And I jumped up, startled, terrified, and uh, I went in and... I remember her standing over me, but I don't really remember what she was saying. I just remember feeling in that moment like, oh, I'm the one in trouble. She's yelling at me. She's not yelling at him. And now I'm going to be the one who's in trouble. And it was only much later on in my journey as I started to learn more about how to kind of challenge these ideas that I, I really began to look at it from a different perspective and really began to see that it wasn't a moment of blame. Uh, it was a moment of protection. Did you ever get a chance to talk to your mom about that experience of her yelling at you? Uh, not that one, uh, but we have talked about other things uh, around the abuse and, and what happened and how things were handled kind of after the fact. You know, there was no question that what he had done was wrong, that he was not going to be allowed, you know, to stay in the house. And, uh, you know, they immediately moved him out. I'm very thankful for that because I, I know the experience of, you know, so many people who, uh, you know, try to talk about the abuse or reveal what's happening. They just don't get that kind of support. I'm so glad that you experienced them really moving to protect you. Mm-hmm. And this grandfather, was he your mom's dad or your dad's dad? Yeah, that was my mother's father. And once she had witnessed what was going on, was there any sense that he had touched her or any other young cousins or siblings inappropriately also? No. There is some, some sense that this was just something that came over him in his older age. Uh, they do say that at times, uh, you know, older people will, you know, with dementia will get confused. And, uh, you know, with adults, with caretakers, you know, they'll forget who they're with. Whether that was a part of what was happening or not, it, it's kind of a, a non point to me (laughs) Uh, as far as, uh, you know, whether that was uh, part of what was happening on his side of things. And when you say that's a non-point to me, do you mean because the bottom line is that it was terrible regardless? Exactly. Right. We can think about it from the perspective of if it gives us empathy or compassion, but we certainly don't want to find ourselves excusing or dismissing, you know, what had happened. Right. So there you are. You're a 10-year-old girl. You'd been living with him for t- five years. You'd been helping him. And kind of this, he starts touching you. And what I heard you say is that part of the difficulty was worrying if it was my fault, but also why did he choose me? Mm-hmm. And I, I, so many people struggle with that question. I'd love to hear how you initially answered that and how, after you'd done sort of more of your own work, how you came to change, how you thought of that. Mm-hmm. Well, my first thought was um, I was a very cuddly little girl. I would just snuggle up with anyone, really. So, you know, in the moment where, you know, we sit down on the porch, I would always, you know, just snuggle up really close. And um, as I started trying to make sense of, like, why this had happened, one of the things that I decided 
to blame was being cuddly, being close. And I decided that that was something that was not safe to be. And so through through the years uh, as a teenager and as a young adult dating and, you know, being in intimate relationships, uh, I would be physical, but I always kind of kept people a little bit at a, an arm's length, right, and wasn't able to truly uh, feel that feeling that I, I could recall of, but you know, before the abuse of just, you know, how yummy it is to just be completely um, open and relaxed in, you know, the arms of another person. And when I recognized that, when I, when I understood that that connection had happened for me, that I was blaming uh, something about who I was for, for causing the abuse, uh, then I had to start doing that work to, to let go of that belief, to let go of believing that there was anything about my character, about my personality, about how I looked, uh, that could have caused the abuse. So, for example, I would say, all right, well, what happened is my grandfather touched me, and I decided, or I, I the reason I decided that happened was because I was too cuddly. And so what are some other reasons? What are some other possible explanations for why that could have happened? So, of course, I go to, well, you know, he was taking advantage. He was sick. He was, uh, you know, he made the choice. There's nothing about who I am that causes somebody to choose to abuse me. It's their choice. It's completely independent of who I am. And so as I started recognizing that and saying to that to myself and and more and more, uh, I really came to understand that I had just put these two ideas together and they didn't belong together. And so I could separate them. And in separating them, I was able to get back to being that person who I truly was, cuddly, open, warm, affectionate. And was it scary to be cuddly? I mean, for you to become back to your original way of being in the world, I imagine may have felt quite risky in the moment. I think, you know, maybe in the first month. But the the amazing thing that I've discovered is that as soon as you get that what you're telling yourself is just a bold-faced lie, as soon as that happened, it just it just broke off. It wasn't a long process. It wasn't painful. It was just recognizing, oh, that's ridiculous. I don't have to believe that anymore. I can choose to believe something else, which is closer to the truth of, this was his choice and had nothing to do with me. And now I can go on and be the person who I want to be. So let's talk more about false beliefs, because in your book, Beyond Surviving, you talk about the false beliefs of abuse. And so we've talked about one, that it was your cuddliness, you know, that it was your fault. I'd love to hear some of the other really common false beliefs that you hear about in your work from people who've been abused. Oh, there's so many. And what's been so amazing to me is that they are um, so common. So it's my fault. There's something wrong with me. Or I wanted him to do it or her to do it. Those are kind of the three biggies. And the ones that often stand in the way uh, of recovery the most. But then there are all sorts of things underneath it. And I certainly felt these things too. Like I'm worthless. I'm not valuable. I don't have any choice. Uh, I'm powerless, can have things like 
people will always take advantage of me, right? Our sense of sexuality can be impacted. We, we can come to think that we're something to just be objectified or used or therefore the service and pleasure of somebody else. And we become disconnected from our own choice and sensations and desires. These sound so familiar from my work also, Rachel. Mm, um, yeah. I want to ask you about the third one you mentioned, this false belief of I must have wanted him to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, I, in particular, I think if if the abuser did not touch or force in a painful way, sometimes people experience pleasure and then feel such complicated feelings about the fact that their body may have responded to the abuse. Mm-hmm. And I'd love to hear how you help people work through that false belief that somehow if my body responded, then it, I must have wanted it. Right. Yeah, that's a very difficult one because the um, the body doesn't know to distinguish between this is a safe and loving partner and this is somebody who should not be doing this. So therefore, turn off and don't respond. The body biologically can't do that. And that can be very confronting because a lot of what happens in, in abuse, the whole package is about removing choice. We don't have a choice about it happening. We don't have a choice about how it happens. We don't have a choice about how frequently it happens. And we don't have a choice about how our body responds. And so the most important first thing that I often you know, do with clients is have a conversation about choice and reclaiming our choice. And for me, that was huge. I I remember there was a moment where I just thought, okay, all of these years, all of my teens, all of my 20s, I was having sex basically out of obligation. I was responding to things, even in conversations or just to ideas, always out of this space of it's out of my hands. It's just happening to me. I don't have any say. And that was a carryover from that experience of not having choice when the abuse happened. And so as an, as an adult, what I started to come to understand was that, wait a minute, I didn't have a choice when I was young. I didn't have a choice about the abuse, but I have a choice today. I have a choice today about what kind of sex I want to have, about what kind of partner I want to be with, about what I want to know and believe about who I am and about relationships and about people. I do have a choice about that. And the more and more I started reclaiming my choice around it, the more I started to distance myself from those negative beliefs that had been holding me back. And it, so when you say that, you know, I'm aware, I'm thinking of so many people I know who have struggled with this exact thing, and mm-hmm. it's very, very difficult. And are there more kind of things that you've discovered that really help people honor the choices they want to make if they're not popular? So... What we often try to do is transform our behavior first. And I did this for so many years. (laughs) I was like, okay, I'm not going to be angry anymore. I'm just going to trust people. I'm going to be open. (laughs) I'm not going to throw that temper tantrum. I'm not going to get upset about little things. I just need to change what I'm doing. And what I discovered through my own journey and through my coursework and through reading um, just tons is that transformation and change, it has to start with your thinking. Because if you go out and say, okay, I'm going to just start trusting someone, but you still have this pattern of thinking that is trust somebody means to be taken advantage of, to be at risk, 
then it's just going to fall apart, right? Yeah, so, so when you say the thinking, the where I'm going is, is really in terms of beliefs, in terms of these meanings mm-hmm. that we make. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, so if I think this really is, you know, that all cuddliness will lead to exploitation, then, then even if I try to say, oh, I'm going to be trusting and cuddling, it won't work. That's, that's what right. you're saying. Got it. Yeah, that's right. And so what I had to do was basically train my brain to, to do something different to make the association that, nope, cuddly actually equals warmth, acceptance, tenderness, openness, love. And how did you train your brain to do that? Well, on the very most basic level, I started just saying that it was true. I just started saying all of these things. When I I sat down and I, I did my list of things that I had come to believe about who I was, you know, there were so many things that I just had come to think about myself, you know, I was worthless and I wasn't pretty and I wasn't smart and all of these sorts of things. And basically I just said, you know what? Okay, this is what's sitting there right now. Now, what do I want to have there instead? And so I wrote a new list and it was things like, I am valuable. I am beautiful. I'm honest. I'm a treasure. And I didn't believe any of those things. I would look at them and I would think, oh, this is ridiculous. But what started happening is that the the brain begins associating the new thoughts. And what that can do is it then can lead to new behavior. So while I had the thought, I'm not valuable, you know, the experiences that I would seek out, the people who I would seek out, all were there reinforcing that same old belief. But when I started pushing at it and saying, no, I'm going to look for something different. I'm going to try to prove something else about who I am. I'm going to try to prove that I'm valuable. Then that transformed the way I thought about how people should treat me. And then new experiences started happening that actually reinforced the positive. So let me just slow you down for a sec because you said something intriguing to me. So you said, right, so you try to replace these old ways of thinking with the new and then you said, then I try to, I'm going to try to prove to myself that that's true. Mm-hmm. So then you, am I hearing you right to say that then you tried to do things that would prove that you were valuable? And that's exactly. how you, uh-huh, interesting. So yeah. you, so rather than just going out and trying to, you know, make yourself behave differently, you were thinking about it more like, how do I behave if I really want to prove that I am valuable? Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. If I'm somebody who's valuable, what does that person say? What does that person do? What kind of choices do they make? Did you have, as you were sorting through, maybe even particularly your, your, the list of beliefs that you'd come to around sex, do you have the experience of having a partner who also helped you really affirm your ability to make choices? I'd love to hear a story of how this really played out concretely in an actual relationship. Mm, yeah. Well, interestingly enough, one of my um, beliefs that came up for me was that to be feminine was to be putting yourself in danger. Uh, One of the other reasons that I blamed, you know, the other things that I blamed for um, being abused was simply being a girl. And so I dressed like a boy. I was very tomboyish. I'd wear dresses here and there, but for the most part... It was like baggy jeans, baggy shirt, you know, just nothing very attractive um, most of the time. And uh, in my, my my current partner, actually, who I'm with, uh, when we started dating, I'd 
started kind of addressing that false belief and thinking about it and, and doing a little bit of work on it. But I have to say that through being with him and the kind of love and encouragement and reflections that he brought into the relationship, that I really started pushing back against that belief. And now, like, you wouldn't believe how many high heels I have. (laughs) I'm a complete shoe hog. I love them. And I have so many dresses. And I feel so good about being a woman and being a girl and being sexual. and, And it is truly, truly amazing. When we are thoughtful about the people who we let into our lives and who we let speak into our lives, the huge impact and the huge difference that it can make. And I'm so, so very thankful to that person, to this person who's in my life right now, because he does bring so much um, just life and um, positivity and has helped me see things about, you know, who I am that um, has really helped me transform and continue my journey of change. So I want to ask you now about what this looks like in the long run, Rachel, because um, people come to me and they want to know, when I feel I've recovered, what is it reasonable to hope that I will feel? And I'd like to ask you personally about that. Having done so much work and been so kind of fearless in looking inside at the stories that you've told yourself and doing your exercises to, to act in different ways, what does beyond surviving look like for you in your life at this point? Hmm. Well, I remember when I was in this kind of survivor stage, it, it felt like I was being bombarded all of the time, right? I was just on this like up and down roller coaster. Some days I'd feel like, okay, I've got it, I can handle it. And the next day it would just be, you know, everything would collapse, everything would fall apart. So the biggest difference for me today is not that there aren't these moments where I go back to something like, oh, you know, I can't trust somebody. What happens is that I recognize what I'm doing immediately. I I see it immediately for what it is, that it's one of these old patterns. And what I have today that I didn't have before are the tools and skills for how to handle that. And so the ultimate outcome, the ultimate result is not that our, what I kind of call our stories or our false beliefs ever go away, but what does change is that the frequency with which we go towards destructive interpretations goes way, 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 way down. And the duration, if you happen to fall into it, the duration that you stay stuck there also decreases because you have the skills and tools for how to pull yourself out of it. I want to ask you one last thing, which is about a very co- the controversial subject of forgiveness. Mm. Working with incest survivors in my own practice, I often, particularly when the abusers say if it was a father or a grandfather, as they age, do I have a moral duty to forgive them before they die? Or is that a form of self-betrayal? And I know you've written about forgiveness. I'd love to hear what your thoughts are about forgiveness when a child has been abused by a grown-up. Well, you're right. This is one of those very controversial topics. Uh, But here's my perspective on it. Uh, Forgiveness is a choice. 
And often the reasons why we choose not to forgive is because we make forgiveness represent all sorts of things that it doesn't. We think if I forgive, then it means I'm letting them off the hook, right? And so we, we somehow fall into this trap of thinking that if I withhold forgiveness, I'm punishing that person. But this is a false belief. The, the purpose of forgiveness is for you. It has nothing to do with the abuser at all. The abuser has long gone on with his or her life. They're not suffering. They're not thinking about it. They're not frustrated and upset about the abuse. So you're holding on to unforgiveness. It's not doing anything to them. Who it's impacting is you. And what it does is I think of it as it keeps the thread connected between you and the abuse experience. For me, when I decided to forgive, when I decided to make that choice, what it was for me was about sending away the abuse. I decided to let it go. And that made a huge difference for me. It's such a fascinating reinterpretation of the word forgiveness. I've never heard it spoken that way, that it really means to free yourself of any links. Mm -hmm. And that there's a way that in not forgiving, what you're saying anyway, is that you're actually staying connected to something that was destructive to you to begin with and still is. Mm-hmm. But what, given this understanding of it, what does it actually mean to forgive them? I mean, does it mean that you decide that you're no longer going to feel angry about it? Does it mean, like, what is it actually? When you say, mm-hmm. okay, I forgave him, what, what, did, what did you do? What did you actually do? Uh, well, I actually did this exercise, which I now uh, encourage my clients to do. I did a, a leaving it all behind exercise, and I wrote down, Everything that I wanted to let go of and leave behind. I actually took them to my grandfather's grave um, and just kind of buried it right there at his grave. Uh, and it, to me, that is the experience of just saying, these are things that you taught me and I'm going to let them go now. And I'm no longer going to hold you or myself accountable for these ideas. So you agree to not hold him accountable either. I understand very much not wanting to hold on to those ideas. They were false beliefs to begin with. They were destructive. But I can imagine someone saying, but wait a second, why not hold him accountable? He was a grown-up. It was his choice. Yep. Well, this is, this is what's going to be a little bit harder to hear because I, I'm not not holding him accountable for the abuse. He chose that. That's what he did. But he didn't do anything else. Everything else was me. And this is one of the hardest things to notice about abuse, that what happened and the only thing that happened that the person is responsible for is choosing to abuse you. And sometimes they give us very direct beliefs about ourselves. Sometimes they very directly say things like you're worthless and and things like that. Or that something terrible will happen if you tell. Yeah, or... right. Exactly. So you hold them accountable for those things. But my grandfather never told me, if you're cuddly, this is what's going to happen to you. He didn't do that. I did that. He never told me, uh, you're an object and nobody's ever going to love you. I did that. And it's not about making myself bad or wrong. How did I know any better? I didn't know any better. I didn't have these tools or skills. I didn't have these ideas. I didn't have the understanding that I have today. 
But it is just noticing that he was long, long gone, and I basically picked up the baton and carried on what he had started. But you know what's so amazing to me about that, Anne? What really, this revelation that happened for me was if I had picked up the baton and I had made the choice to start believing those things about myself, then I could also make the choice to set it down. So you went to his grave. You had written down all these false beliefs that you had created, the baton that you had picked up, so to speak, and you buried them, and you decided to not hold him accountable for the beliefs that you had come to, that he hadn't handed you himself. Mm-hmm. And you decided, so he's not accountable for that, but what does it mean that he, you know, he was accountable for the actual abuse? Mm-hmm. So have you forgiven him for that too? And what happens to his accountability for that? Basically, all forgiveness meant to me at that moment was to say, you made a choice. I don't like your choice, but I'm no longer going to let your choice impact my life. And I'm moving on. Forgiveness is not about saying, I absolve you. See, we don't need to absolve the person of anything. And that's why people avoid forgiveness all the time. Yes. Because they think that forgiveness is absolution. No. Forgiveness, literally, the, the meaning of the word is to send away. So I simply said, I am sending you away. I'm happy to send you away today. It's so fascinating. I've never been taught the difference between forgiveness and absolution. And I think that people would find it so much more palatable if they thought I'm not absolving him because that's what people don't want to do. But send away, they absolutely do want to do. Exactly. Rachel, thank you so much for being my guest. You've, You've given me so many ideas to really chew on and think about. I'm grateful to you. Uh, thank you, Anne. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for creating this space. It's a, it's a real gift. I've been speaking with Rachel Grant, author of Beyond Surviving, The Final Stage in Recovery from Sexual Abuse. Rachel, what's your website address so people can look this up and find out more about your work? Absolutely. It's rachelgrantcoaching.com, and uh, Rachel is R-A-C-H-E-L, Grant, G-R-A-N-T, coaching. And they can download the first two bits of the book for free from the website. So I really encourage people to go and check that out. Um, Always love to connect with people and get feedback. And um, the blog is there, lots of resources. um, So I'm really excited about that. Wonderful. Thank you, Rachel. My thanks to Gabe Graben for producing the show, to Jen Hudson for mixing the sound, Jim Russell for being my consultant, and Maurice Leonard for the music. If you did not get to hear this whole interview, and if you would like to, please go to our website at www.safespaceradio.com where you can download the show. You can subscribe there to get a weekly email with a link to that week's show. You can also email me at drann at safespaceradio.com if you have a question or a suggestion. Also, you can download us from iTunes and like us on Facebook. Next week, I'll be speaking with Mike Skinner about his physical and emotional abuse growing up. Coming up next is Speak Freely.